What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Cody Burkhart is classically trained in both aerospace and mechanical engineering from the University of Colorado at Boulder and works as a robotics design engineer for NASA He has taken his passion for engineering, math, and science and applied it to movement paradigms, biomechanical analysis, programming, and coaching of athletes. In this conversation, Sean and Cody talk about what type of training and research NASA is doing to get their astronauts to be at peak performance and how this can apply to your life. Cody also dives deep on topics such as mentorship, mastery, and so much more in these very thought-provoking conversations. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Cody, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? Not too bad, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. You are a very fascinating human being, so I I cannot wait to dive deep on some topics with you. Uh, But before we get started, everyone's got to know, how do you first get a job with NASA? Uh, Actually, the uh, University of Colorado at Boulder, uh, where I went to school, they have uh, kind of uh, every semester they bring in a bunch of different uh, businesses and organizations that allow you to do kind of a little career fair. I happen to have had enough credits at the time coming from high school and AP testing to be able to uh, attend as a sophomore and uh, basically had always wanted to work for NASA, wanted to be an astronaut, found them in the uh, room, gave them in my information and uh, then got an interview the next day in order to uh, see if it was possible to find a co-op spot. And I got accepted as a co-op that next semester. And the way the co-op worked was basically you go out between school and work and I started out there for a semester and a summer and then came back two more summers before graduation and basically at the end of that process, assuming that everyone appreciates what you've done, uh, you get to apply yourself to uh, the different groups that you're interested in and from there they make the selection and that's how it worked out. It's funny, you hear a lot of kids when they're young and I want to work for NASA someday and then here you are, you're actually doing it. What's that like to accomplish that goal? Uh, I think at first it was very surreal. Um, I made some sacrifices relative to my own life at that time. It was one of those pieces where, again, I was a freshman when I did the interview. It was something where I had never anticipated that I would suddenly find myself in a position after my first year of school to essentially leave school in order to go do a job that wasn't even a job yet. Like It felt like I was getting to the end of the college rainbow before college had finished. It was a, a very, it was just an interesting way to feel um, as far as knowing that I was going to have to move my schooling back and try and shift when I was going to graduate and all those plans that I thought I had because I felt like this was the bigger plan all along. Um, and so being able to achieve it was really, really cool. And those first few days felt um, like 
they they weren't <laughs> they weren't real. You know, they were just an experience. But uh, now that I've gotten into it and, and gone through it, I can definitely say that I appreciate being able to say that it was something that I did desire and want, and I made sure to do anything that I could along the way to align myself with it and be successful with it. What's your current position with them? Um, I kind of serve a few different positions. I'm the project manager for ARED, which is the advanced resistive exercise device. And that's what we do for crew strength and conditioning on the International Space Station. And so how that works is uh, we have three major articles. We've got uh, T2, which is the treadmill, CBIS, which is our cycler ergometer, and ARID, which is uh, mostly your bar and cable exercises. And then I also am the lab chief of a, a lab that works in advancements for um, exploration exercise that includes uh, intelligent immersive biofeedback exercise systems. And uh, I serve lastly as a shepherd for um, relationships and external strategy to try and align the different things that we're doing in our group. I'm so excited to nerd all on uh, on some of those <laughs> topics there. I cannot wait to do that. But I also want to just rewind slightly when you mentioned that you were going to go for this job with NASA. You mentioned how you already had all those credits for college, things like that. What were you like from a young age? I have to imagine you kind of had some of these <laughs> mindsets early on. And looking back on myself as a kid, you know, obviously trying to remember certain little pieces are difficult, but it was one of those situations where I didn't necessarily have a ton of friends. I had some very close friends and I still do. I'm just not an individual who I guess I would say spreads my love around. I, uh, and I don't mean it in a negative sense by any means. It's just to say that it takes me a long time to feel comfortable enough to entirely trust somebody and to share that part of myself with them. And so I invest an awful lot in those particular individuals. So needless to say, I didn't have a ton of friends. I would do homework during lunch in order to make sure that I could leave right after school to go do Taekwondo. And I do Taekwondo for like four hours and then come back home and um, study until like one or two o'clock in the morning and then uh, get up at six o'clock to go to seminary for church and repeat all over again. I just, it never seemed like it hurt too bad. I wanted too many things and I wanted to be able to do all the things that I wanted. And so I, at the time, and honestly, ever since I've chosen to sacrifice something that I know that is extremely important, which is my sleep. But I've tried to minimize that in order to have as much awake time as I possibly can. And so going, growing up, I, I just, I really paid attention to the things that were important to me and tried to eliminate all of the things that were important to other people. And it was easy because I was an introvert to not necessarily need that stimulation of a lot of people and therefore need the stimulation and advice of, you know, a thousand other teenagers trying to, to raise me. <laughs> um, I, I actually heard that on a, an episode of the show driver on Netflix, this dad's talking about raising his kid uh, at home and, and doing homeschooling. And he says, you know, I'd rather have her be raised in this shop than have her raised by a thousand different, you know, teenagers. Hmm. And I felt like that has been a, an important part of my life and the fact that I missed that phase where I wasn't allowing a bunch of teenagers' opinions and emotions to um, change the direction that I had applied myself towards, mostly because I just never had time to engage with them. But uh, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily uh, the kind of kid who, you know, did all the sports teams things and, and showed up to every school event and did all those different pieces. I just 
I like to get down and, and get things done. I always have. I mean, what was the narrative like in your head at the time? You were so focused and were you just thinking through your head at the time, if I do this, the payoff will be in X number of years, or did you actually enjoy that process? I think at the beginning, I just enjoyed it because I was a kid. I think as we grow up, we start to have different ways to look at that. And I will say that how I look at that now is entirely different. But at the time, uh, it, it was very much so a, you know, suffer now and and later on, you won't have to experience the type of dissatisfaction that could be. You know, I was looking at my AP courses, especially when I got into high school and saying, all right, well, if I take these tests, I'll be able to be at this level in school. But if I don't take the course for this and just read the book and take the test anyways, then I have the chance of being at this place. And so like my senior year, I took, I think I was like 10 AP tests of which like three or four of them I wasn't even in the class for. I just studied them at home so that way I could have enough credits to be considered a uh, sophomore when I went into college. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, and truly because of that choice, because of saying at the time I want to have more AP tests than anyone else that I knew, it, it put me in a position to have those conversations with NASA to even be in this position because they only allowed people sophomore and up to be able to interview with them. It just happens to, it felt like at the time, like the universe had aligned itself and was like, here you go. You know, you, you, your high school experience could have been something else, but you decided to make it this and here's your reward. But I never really, I find that I have this anticipation of a, a reward that's in the future. And whenever that reward comes, it's, it's less important, I guess is the way to look at it. Like I, uh, I fight for something and then I get it and I'm like, okay, I guess that was cool. And the cool part about that though, is that it has allowed me to understand and appreciate more of the journey. And now that I'm older and can look back on each of those individual circumstances, it was all about what I learned and how I was during those moments, even though I was aligning myself towards some grander perspective, the grander perspective or that grander reward was never really a reward necessarily as I thought it would be. Instead, it just felt like, okay, now we've gone through this door. And so rather than viewing it like a hero's journey where at the end I get to, you know, hold up the golden chalice, instead it's like a journey towards a door and then you open up the door and there's a whole new room and you got to go explore that one. And that's the way I think it's felt along the way is I'm never trying to say that the next thing I want is the end. I'm just saying the next thing I want is the next thing I want. And I'm going to put myself in a position to achieve that, even if it means some sacrifice and even if it means some audacious risk along the way. Well, I mean, thank you for opening up your door. I think that's really going to help set the stage um, and, and give the listeners a little better perspective uh, into you and how you work. And I, I want to read a quote by you to, to set up what you're currently doing. And it's this, that's ultimately what I'm trying to do with my work as a whole. How can I get you as a human being to increase your performance by being better informed about who and what you are and being able to understand how the process that information that's power to me. Now, I want to take that quote in the context. And then also let's now dive into some of the things that you're currently working on at NASA. I'd love to do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, right now. So again, when I talk about the uh, role as the ARED project manager, particularly relative to our group, we do what's called sustaining engineering. So that means that the hardware is already in space. And if something goes wrong, we take care of it. 
we try to make it available to the crew again as quickly as possible because it is extremely important to them. The kind of rumoring opinion of the crew is that there are three really important things to them. It's the ability to eat, the ability to use the restroom, and the ability to work out. So it's kind of their peaceful and different and unique element of the day that creates an attachment to being on Earth because when you don't have gravity, those opportunities to feel load again uh, really, I imagine, uh, change your perspective and are something that you welcome. So based on those types and pieces, the International Space Station has obviously been up in space for a while now, and we've continued to be successful in maintaining its success to allow it to extend its life. Uh, every single time we get closer to end of life, we define a new end of life. But for the, the current moment, you know, we say that the end of life of station is 2024 for the moment. So when we start looking at the future of our hardware systems, if the International Space Station, you know, in the next number of years becomes something where it's either transferred over to somebody else as an entity or we eventually, you know, bring it back down and, and burn it up, there is this next flavor of travel that is you know, considered parts of gateway and exploration. So gateway is kind of that focus towards going back to the moon. And then we start talking about exploration. We start talking about, you know, deeper and darker places of travel. And in those situations, we don't have the accessibility for what it is that we use now. So A-RED, to give you an idea, it is just the same size as you would imagine a squat rig. So imagine your squat rig at the gym at where the platform below you is actually attached to uh, the squat rig itself. And that's kind of what A-RED is. So it's about 1,200 pounds and it's enormous. We use vacuum cylinders to generate the load, uh, mechanical features. It creates a situation where that piece, while super successful at maintaining our crew's health and functionality, is not something that we're going to be able to use long term. We're not going to be able to put that into a smaller capsule, which is the size more or less of a dorm room, where you and three of your you know, possibly closest friends are now trying to spend time and a long time too. Uh, we know that as far as how crew health performance decays, that based on shuttle mission examinations in the past, even within 10 days, you're in a position where you're seeing negative returns, which makes sense. You know, when we start talking about a high-performance athlete, if I give you more than two days worth of a rest, you've basically, your body goes, all right, this is my time to kind of collapse down and recover. That means that after two days of being in space without any load, your body starts to go into kind of this new change mode where it's like, all right, I've got a new set of circumstances. I've got new sensory input. We've got new responsibilities to be able to maintain. We should start, you know, pre-packaging and changing the way we work to be a little bit more effective. So you start drastically losing a, a calcium and those kinds of support functions because if you're not applying load from your muscles by re uh, trying to restore balance or keep yourself grounded from gravity, you don't locally break those bones. And so if you don't locally break them, they don't locally grow. So they don't continue to strengthen themselves. In fact, they start to absorb as you try and you know, take in that calcium. So we suddenly become weaker and weaker. So the solutions that we're making have to be solutions that are going to not only provide cardiovascular endurance and say, you know, keep somebody fit, but I, I give that whole background for people who may not really have a premise or an understanding of how the impacts of lack of gravity have on your body, but they're tremendous. You start to have atrophy, uh, again, the bone loss pieces. There are tons of situations where you start to have a separation of different spaces that you haven't had before. Uh, for instance, I mean, 
in space, you get an elongation of the spine because now you don't have that compressive load of your entire body weight stacked on top of itself. There are now unique loading circumstances where presumably a shear load across your spine, obviously your spine doesn't like shear load, but if you now have a gap where it's less compressive force holding that together, it's easier to shift some of those discs and, and there are new elements of injury that can exist. So the systems that you're making can't just be kind of a hodgepodge and quick solution. They have to be very thoughtful. And on top of it, you have to be in a position to make devices that don't impact the hardware itself. And so what I mean by that is we have uh, you know, vibration isolation systems underneath our hardware. They're designed to take the load out of the person and basically pipe it down as much as possible so that the structure itself does not actually see that load. Because if it were to see that load, for instance, you know, there are stories of when the original treadmills were installed before the uh, passive systems were installed underneath them to help support the isolation, the wings or the solar panels of the International Space Station were you know, essentially flapping. They were seeing load that far out into the structure. Um, it's a big deal in space to protect against those loads. So the systems that we're designing now we have all these constraints and we're like, you know, what are we going to do? We started then looking into uh, robotics type elements and motor technologies. So more of an electronically driven force perspective than the bungees and vacuum cylinders and mechanical load variations that we've had so far, which has significantly reduced our, um, our footprint and made a smaller hardware, but there are unique problems with that smaller hardware, and we still have unique applications for space as far as how much room do you have to move around. It's not like the uh, – think about your gym experience where you're going to go to the gym, but your gym is also your bedroom, and it's also your mess hall, and it's also your kitchen, and it's also your you know meeting room, all of those things at one time. So how do you find enough room to be able to operate – and it's not like you're going to be going and running sprint drills up and down um, the hardware. So suddenly we then start to say, how do we make these devices more durable? How do we make them uh, more fully functional and capable and diverse? And also, how do we then say, that's fine for two weeks, but what about several years? What about those really long, deep exploration pieces? How do we make a situation where you don't go crazy? If you could only go downstairs and jump on your Concept 2 rower every single day, you may not be excited about it. If you like rowing, maybe you're super excited. But maybe after a while, you're like, you know, I just want to feel a squat again. I just want to feel what it feels like to do a pull-up again. How do we work with those pieces? And then how do we even uh, align with it even more so when we start talking about the severe sensory deprivation that you experience? You have this visual system that inputs, you know, 70% of your information and it's basically got the same kind of things to look at every day, super, super white and super, super dark. And at the same time as that's happening, you don't have that sensation of gravity. So the somatosensory field that you're used to has changed. And even so much as things like your balance and equilibrium, now that inner ear fluid is floating, you're not getting the response to the, the, the vectors as far as force being applied to those internal ear fibers. Uh, and suddenly your brain starts to recalculate and create new orientations and those patterns hold such that whenever you get to pay dirt, you've got you know two weeks worth of time before you really reboot the system, dust off the old 
firmware and get yourself into a position where your brain's like, all right, I understand how to walk effectively and navigate effectively now. I remember my spatial orientation. I remember what load feels like. So our systems have to be designed to handle all of those things because ultimately we're not delivering robots, we're delivering humans. And we can't expect to be successful if those humans don't have the ability to function exactly how they need to function as soon as possible. Our job is to maintain that resiliency, the ability to perform those tasks, even under duress, and also to accelerate the return to duty kind of concept. And uh, so in order to be successful with that, here's what I'll say. Uh, there are parts of, you know, in working for the government, you say, these are the opinions of the government and these are the opinions of me. And so with respect to the fact that there are protocols as far as how you discuss government stuff, I'll say that I align with the things that we're doing at NASA. But when I talk about these things, I don't want them to be perceived as the opinion of the entire organization, just as out of respect. So for the sake of the conversation, you can consider them my opinions, but they are supported by many of the people I work with and we are aligning toward them, which is how do I create a system where the barrier of separation between what you consider reality and what is virtual reality in this case are essentially transparent and don't exist? How do I make that occur? And you know, we start out with these easy solutions like saying, okay, if I put you in a virtual reality with an audio immersion such that you can't hear anything outside, your brain will be mostly filled with information that it needs. It doesn't necessarily have to feel touch entirely. If I can make you feel like you're inside of a room or on a cruise or any of the number of different various uh, VR experiences that people have been given, they're super effective. And we want to be able to try and do those things for our crew. So you don't have to just work out in a white capsule all the time and be able to see the same you know, soft goods bag staring at you in the face while you try and uh, minimize the amount of noise that you're making while somebody else is on a family call kind of thing. But at the same time, we want to go further. We want to say, how do we prevent you from having those moments of separation where you kind of get to, in a variation and another way of looking at the uncanny valley concept of where it feels like you're not really 100% there because it's so close, it's almost real, but it's just far enough that it feels so fake. And a big part of that then becomes this haptic involvement. So how do we get a suit of some sort that gives you the idea of feel. If I want you to feel like uh, water is falling down your back, can I do that? Because if I can do that, suddenly now the idea of seeing a waterfall and hearing a waterfall becomes this truly immersive experience when all of those things become aligned by that sense of feel. Suddenly it's the, you know, your mind has to to solve itself and it goes, oh, okay, so it may not smell like a waterfall. It may not taste like a waterfall right now. And I'm gonna have to figure those two out. But for right now, I got three of the other five that say that this is a waterfall. So I'm gonna solve for you right now. I'm gonna bring back some memories of, you know, the smells of a waterfall for you and that taste just so that I can make my own reality seem true because right now I'm super confused. And that's a really powerful tool because if we can pull somebody into those environments and then train within those environments, there's a lot of skill sets that we get to retain mentally from a, a construction pattern. But at the same time, there's a whole lot of novelty that keeps that stimulus awake for them such that they don't become bored and they don't become frustrated with what they're experiencing. And instead they consider uh, training from a holistic standpoint where now it's not just about 
can I get stronger? Can I get faster? But can I challenge my brain? Can I challenge my perceptions? Can I allow myself to truly get a full training session in where my body is allowed experiences from a broad spectrum of capabilities? And so with respect to those pieces, we are trying to be better at how we monitor the physiology of somebody. Uh, how do we measure the environmental conditions of them? How do we then take that information and gather it across a 24-hour period such that I know how you sleep, I know how you move, I know how you eat, I know what your activity level is, I know what your morning score was for, for your perception tests, you're happier today, you know, if, if that's the word you choose to describe yourself with. Um, I know your arousal states, I know your body temperature, I know your heart rate and those different recovery pieces that we establish. I've got all of this data and I can ingest it then into my exercise device under the virtual trainer perspectives in order to actually have a machine that goes, all right, this is what you need today. And not just a machine that says, I'm going to give you the answer, but we're also being thoughtful to the fact that I can't really create adaptations successfully if I force you to do something. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, try forcing a kid to do anything. <laughs> you can force all you want to, but my son, if he's not going to do it, he's not going to do it. Neither of them, right? Even the little one, he's not going to do it if he doesn't want to do it. If you instead create this relationship of introspection and awareness where they are aware of the information that's being gathered from them and you make the device deliver this information to you such that you can make your own choices at the beginning before those you know, protective safety control features kick in, we can really be powerfully changing the way that somebody manages himself. And so an example would be, uh, you know, we have a, a metabolic program with our miniature exercise device where essentially as you're rowing, in this case, it gives you some barriers that say, I want you to be within 135 to 145 heartbeat. And if you escape outside of that, I'm gonna give you some warnings. They're just gonna be colors. And those colors are yellow. And it's either gonna be flashing or bold. And that's going to tell you, hey, you're a little bit outside of the boundary I want you in consider making changes to align yourself. And if you get too far out of bounds, say now you're 20 beats away from our intended range, then they go into a red situation where if you don't quickly move out of the red, my hardware self adjusts. And so in that case, maybe you're rowing at a level five, it drops down to a level four because the system is trying to assume, hey, maybe you haven't seen the information, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're in the zone, whatever it is, I wanna help make sure that the workout that we know is best for you right now and that was designed for you is the workout that you're achieving. And that becomes really powerful in the fact that if I can start to then layer more information onto that, I can be more successful at informing you as an individual how your body is adapting. This is kind of the, you know, the way that we've gone. We've gotten into this world of big data and metadata where we want to have all this information about ourselves. And really what we're saying is we want to know what our brain is seeing as a raw data file as opposed to what we've put our own perceptive goggles on for. So, you know, as you've worked out throughout your entire life, when your heart rate starts to escape, you have certain tactics that allow you to know, hey, heart rates are really fast. We should slow down. We should take some breaths. We should focus. And now we're trying to basically backdoor that and capture that information early and then try and help somebody see that in a way where we are guessing what their reward function is for optimization. And at the same time, we're trying not to threaten their own selective choice. 
So it's this really weird balance between letting them have true autonomy and power, but at the same time trying to give them something of an optimization target based on what we've seen for performance. And you can then layer on more information. Now I'm going to show you your breathing rate. I'm going to show you your temperature. And suddenly, though, you've got this you know, 50,000 display element where there's just a bunch of numbers everywhere. And so we're then trying to say, how do we try and stimulate some of those delivery mechanisms such that they're not maybe just through the visual system? How can we deliver cues through auditory? How can we deliver cues through somatosensory or those haptic involvements? Are there ways that we can pass more information to you quickly in a subconscious pattern to alert you to your performance characteristics and not detract away from the experience that you're in? Because we still want you immersed. We still want you to feel like even though you are, you know, heads up displayed, powered by all this extra information and it seems unfair and unrealistic, we still want it to be you in control. Um, and so the systems surrounding the development of those pieces are what we're working on. And we're trying to align with some really awesome groups. Uh, I can proudly say that we have some very big partnerships uh, coming here in the next few months with some organizations that are really changing the way that we do each of these types of situations, these situations like haptic suit environments, these situations like gamification VRs, um, these situations like being able to sew garments with transparent uh, fibers and power uh, supply systems in 3D bevels. There's just things that don't even seem to make sense that I get to see on a regular basis. Um, but we're trying to find a way to put them all in the same box and align everyone towards the same vision so that we can create these systems that would, in fact, not just change how we manage crew involvement, but possibly change the way that we manage human performance, giving a new level of connection to individuals um, that has yet to exist. So I know that was a whole lot of information. No, I mean, this was absolutely fascinating how, how you're able to break that down. It's so funny. I mean, I had some semblance of, of what this might look like when you're talking about what these astronauts or athletes are doing. And there's just a million more variables that didn't even enter my train of thought. But I'm curious. So you mentioned the advanced resistive exercise device, the A-RED. Mm -hmm. So when you have an astronaut who's going to be using this device in space, what are you guys first trying to accomplish? You mentioned some of the data points and key data. When, you, when you're getting that athlete into this device, what, what does a routine even look like for them? Is it pretty standard what you see might see down here on Earth? Yeah, so each astronaut, um, as they go up, gets uh, what's called an ACER, so an Astronaut Strength Conditioning Rehabilitation Specialist. And that is uh, essentially the trainer who has worked with them on the ground in preparation for flight and then manages and watches how they perform, uh, along with the fact that they have an individual crew surgeon. So each of them has their own flight surgeon. And the flight surgeon and the ACER, you know, essentially get together and, and monitor as they go through the process to say, you know, how are they performing? What kind of needs assessments do they have? Are there any injuries? Are we seeing types of changes to performance, sleep, uh, nutrition, those types of pieces that we need to navigate around? Um, and they design these sequences around them. So they do, um, I would say there's a lot of the same types of things that are used over and over again, but you have to realize that the concept of diversity of exercise is a little bit difficult. We can't just say, no, all right, today we're going to do lateral jumps and some fartlek training on the hill out back. You know, there's there's no hill out back um, and there's no way to do lateral jumping. There's all of these very confined spaces. And so the plan is always how do we get the biggest bang for our buck? And, 
you know, anyone who's done performance for a long time knows that there are some very simple ways to get the biggest bang for the buck when we start talking about an athlete. You know, they make the jokes of everything can be solved by squats and fish oil. There is some reality to the idea of can we take some of these basic strength motions just to generate load? Because in this case, we're not trying to make astronauts necessarily stronger, although I'll get to that in a second, but we are trying to make them capable of returning home. That is essentially the goal. Can they stay healthy? And then when they get into the return vehicle and they're experiencing, you know, eight to 10 G's worth of load as they come in reentry, can they healthily return? And do they have the functional muscle tissue and stability and joints and all those kinds of things that they need to do so? And so their exercise sessions, they typically train about six days a week, uh, one day of rest. And a lot of people go, oh my gosh, six days a week. But again, remember, you're used to having 24 hours a day worth of load. They're only getting an hour and a half to two hours worth of load a day, six days a week. So there are some huge separations between the idea of what we think is uh, overtraining, quote unquote, and what actually is overtraining. In this case, they're trying to replace in that small amount of time a full day's worth of loading to their bones and muscle tissues in order to prevent some big decays. And so a lot of the things that they'll focus on are things like squats, deadlifts, heel raises. And those are particularly of interest because those bigger muscle masses that normally take load often, like your heel bone, that Achilles is pulling on your heel bone all the time. And that's a lot of force. And it's a steel cable. But when you're in space, imagine just like when you lay down, your foot points out as that Achilles contracts and you're not actually causing a stretch reflex to it. It's not but through ambulation that you get that effect. And if you're not ambulating in space, walking in space, then you're not actually getting that stretch and that pull. So we've got to find a way to load that. We've got to find a way to continue to break down that heel bone so that it grows and keeps itself strong. Same thing with the femur, same thing with the pelvis. And so we focus a little bit more towards those lower body type loading environments. But then they do things like crunches and sit-ups and uh, curls and tricep extensions and uh, single leg squat variations, um, RDL variations, sumo versus tight stance. There's still a lot of variation that we get to, and we are always trying to come up with new things to apply to them, and that way they can grow off of it. So from a standard practice, you might, for instance, do all six days worth of training on A-RED in a week. You might have three days worth of training on A-RED and three days of training on T2, which is the treadmill. You might have three on that and two on Cvis and one on the treadmill. Uh, the variations are all a little bit different to the crew and the crew gets a little bit of selection uh, preference too and communicating with their Acer to try and say like, hey, you know, I could use a little bit of this. And then they kind of also pencil that around uh, activities like EVAs because an extravehicular activity, which is where they don the spacesuit and go outside, is extremely physically strenuous. And there's an awful lot of things that they have to do. Just closing the glove because of the positive pressure takes about 10 to 15 pounds. So imagine that you have, you know, essentially those little uh, uh, finger gloves that try to help build the strength for your fingers. And you have to overcome that force every time just to start using your fingers. And that's not even to hold the tool. That's just to get the fingers and the glove to bend. And so those change how the, the actual exercise routine goes. But that's kind of the mapping. And then they will slowly increase their loads, pay attention to their performance, see what kind of repetitions that they do to try and increase that loading as they go from the first time they get on orbit to when they get ready to leave as consistently as possible. 
And honestly, uh, an awful lot of astronauts come back stronger in a bunch of different metrics. And that's because for the first time really in many, many years or for some of them, the first time in their life, or maybe it's just the pure raw consistency, but they've got six months where they're training consistently every single day, doing lifts and motions and particular movements that they wouldn't have necessarily otherwise done. You know, if your type of working out has always been your whole life to do, you know, a five mile run every morning, you might have amazing cardiovascular endurance, but you might necess not necessarily have a really heavy squat. So all of a sudden they're training with A-Red and doing squats all the time and they get stronger and they come back and they can squat more. So it's this really cool uh, experience to be able to watch and see how the performance changes, even in this environment that would try and tell you that it's susceptibly never going to be positive for anyone who goes up there because it is trying to eliminate the things that make you strong and resilient. Um, but the individuals in this you know, whole entire group that work together to help the astronauts succeed, uh, each of us has a very particular ro role and I think we're extremely successful at it. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I love just hearing about all this and I want to sidestep um, what you're doing currently with astronauts for a second. And you mentioned there might be some things that even people here on earth could implement and give, this, give them the most bang for their buck. You mentioned maybe squat fish oil. What, what are some of your <laughs> thoughts around what you were mentioning there? Well, the, the things that we, we know from basic human performance are all the rules that we're applying in space. It's not like we're rewriting rules. Um, we just got done recently doing uh, sprint studies in space. Uh, and that sprint study was aimed to show if somebody performed high uh, intensity interval training on the treadmill with recovery pieces, how would their cardiovascular performance compare to someone who performed essentially no training of that sort or that performed more of that long, slow distance monostructural element. Um, on the ground, you know, with the Tabata and all these things that we've done for years and years and years, we've said, you know, yay, verily, verily, high intensity interval training is the shit, right? It, it gets the job done. Um, in space, it was, does it also happen here or is it different? And after the, the um, testing was over, it does work. It shows the same consistency in it. Uh, what I've seen and paid attention to, and again, I, I speak from these things being my opinions because there's a lot of individuals who are doing a lot of research studies that are in the middle or just completing or have published them that don't necessarily say what I'm saying. But from what I have seen from my lens as a coach, I'm seeing that while there are some very unique perspectives in some long duration mission issues, so those individuals who've gotten past six months worth of time in space, that's when things kind of get a little bit different. But in that first six months, we still really perform and behave like we're here. So we get to see that corresponding relationship between the successful application of lifts and training be exactly what we know is expected from here on earth, which you know, gives us a leg up in designing things in the future. And it also should give confidence to people who are you know trying to apply some of these basic principles here on earth when somebody says you know you should do some tabata well you know, astronauts say it work too <laughs> you know it's there we're not going to try and reinvent that necessarily but at the same time our abilities to develop some of these technologies should be able to provide some really unique ways of training and applications in the future that we're already seeing being applied you know vr training is not anything new there are people who use vr training in sports uh, Clemson is a, a great example, their football team. It's obviously working. <laughs> the 
so as far as asking what can people here on earth do, you know, the third rock from the sun Avenue, I, I won't say that there's too many crazy things, but I also do a lot of crazy things and those don't necessarily have to do with space, but from what space suggests, you know, being able to load yourself uh, moderate and, and, and heavy environments is a good thing. Being able to do some volume is a good thing. You know, we know that the only two ways to build muscle really are through overloading them or through hypertrophy. That's kind of how you respond. So there should be a balance of both in your training sessions. You should be trying to get some volume-based work to get that hypertrophy. You should also be trying to get yourself towards heavy loads. Now, as an example, I had back surgery a few years back and my doctor, you know, at the time, my physician was like, you'll, you'll never run RM again. <laughs> Good luck trying to tell me that, you know, <laughs> I'm going to, and I'm going to prove to you why I can, because it's healthy. It's healthy to try and work your way back to those extreme loads, not from a standpoint of just trying to be like, oh yeah, I've got a 400 pound back squat. That's not the point. The point is I have a buffer against an oops that's larger than somebody else's. There's been plenty of times where we've all slipped on ice or tripped on a curb or suddenly smashed our knee into something. The more resilient you are as a human being, the more resilient you are to all those random pieces of crap that happen to you each day. And so when people try and look at things like strength and conditioning and say, well, you know, running's much safer. Is it though? The running is a great thing and I love it. And it's a very highly skilled activity though. And most people just strap on their shoes, don't warm up and say, all right, let's go run three miles. I would very seldom just suddenly start grabbing 500 pounds on a deadlift, right? I got to work my way into it. It may be a short work into it, but I'm definitely going to work my way into it. Cold bars are, are not that easy. So applying a diversity of training styles where you are allowing yourself cardiovascular elements, you are allowing yourself some nice long slow distance pieces so you can work on aerobic system functioning, being able to do interval sessions so that you can work on the development of the anaerobic transition and also your ability to you know, kind of process CO2. One of the big things we've all been hammering lately is uh, breath work. It is one of the very few things that you have access to in your life that is both an autonomic and a manual function. It's like being able to have the, the tiptronic mode in your car where you can have automatic shifting, but when you really want to get fast and dirty, you can click it over. That's a really big thing. Your breathing allows you to not only balance the amount of oxygen that you're bringing into your body, but it's about clearing carbon dioxide and moving around hydrogen ions such that you don't have local acidity that you know shuts you down. How do you manage that such that you're not scrubbing all your CO2 out and therefore reducing your body's affinity to oxygen and almost starving it out without noticing it? We see so many people that huff and puff as mouth breathers when they work out, uh, sleep with their mouth open. Those are a lot of really painful things. You know, I take my mouth shut at night. <laughs> That's not necessarily what everyone does, but my son does too. He's seven years old and it looks really weird when he's got a piece of uh, waterproof tape over his mouth. But <laughs> it's about about trying to build these structures because you get to live your whole life this way. You might as well learn from it. Um, so I know that doesn't necessarily say that I'm passing on the knowledge of space necessarily to how it helps for human performance. I say that because I don't feel that we're entirely there right now. A lot of getting crew members healthy in space was a process of ensuring that it was a one-to-one apples-to-apples conversion as much as possible 
because it was such a new environment. It wasn't like we just could say, all right, we're just going to start with squats because we know that that works. We don't know if it works. We got to figure out if it works when we've only got a very small N you know, sample size as to how many people we can try this on. So we have to be very particular about how we test it so that we don't introduce error. But that being said, the future of what we're doing, where we have the ability to align these technologies is an entirely different ecosystem because now we are saying, how do we import all of this advanced robotics development that we've used in order to assess and sense and monitor our vehicles and hardware and those different places that we're going and the crew members that we have and apply those to exercising such that your Fitbit and you know, like my Garmin kind of thing right now, I get some steps out of it. I get some shitty optical heart rate out of it. There's some fun stuff about it, but it's not what you're going to have soon. And having seen some of the types of research funding proposals that have come out and the things that people are asking in DOD and asking from us, there are some really badass things that are about to come out. Things that are going to change the way that we engage with ourselves because so far there's a black box really. Your body sends, your body is just essentially a sensor-based system, right? I've got these sensors at random places, maybe they're tactile or pressure receptive um, neurons then signals that send back to say, I feel touch. But I also have thermoreceptors. When you touch a table that's colder, you literally feel the, the heat pouring out of your body into that element as cold because you're locally pulling heat from yourself. And so all of that information gets passed along power lines and data structures to your core brain, which is, you know, essentially the CPU unit. But there's this programs, these functions, this intelligence, this prefrontal cortex of perception that also changes how you define those feelings based on the parameters and the buckets that you've always seen. So essentially what I've said is I'm receiving raw data, but the way that it actually comes out of my head and the way that I actually feel about it is layered upon by all of this tribal, cultural, societal, self-decision knowledge that has gotten me to this point. Does it change the game if suddenly you get to see the raw data as optimized by the idea of a particular performance characteristic instead of being optimized by what your life said that should be the most important thing. Um, and as an example of that, you know, you may believe that the most important thing in your exercise is the amount of weight that you're lifting because you're trying to get big, right? So your reward function is getting big. But what if the data started to suggest to you that from a strength performance perspective, you should go a little bit lighter with a little bit more repetitions and it guides you towards that structure? Does that change things? Do you suddenly realize an appreciation for something different that is more aligned towards being an effective human being than being more like what you think the world wants you to be like? There's a lot of really interesting things that can come from that. And I think that those are the pieces that are going to be worth paying attention to that we can give people here on the earth. I mean, you brought up a lot of things I would I would love to dive deep on. One of them being breath work. It's something I've been experimenting with last year, and we've had a lot of listeners reach out. They're fascinated by it. They want to know more about it. So what's a current breath, -like breath work practice look like for you if you're prepping for a workout? So it all depends on the workout that we're, we're getting into. Um, I say that because if I want to go do a 1RM type practice, you know, I'm going to do the kind of the referential breath of fire piece. I'm going to try and get myself sympathetically jacked out. 
Um, those can be easily accomplished by basically, you know, nasal breathing in and out, almost like a, a dragon, as it were. And we see this anyways in people who don't even really know that they're doing it, right? Watch somebody who's getting ready to do a one RM lift and you'll see them be like, right? And that's great that they're doing it. They're automatically shifting towards that function, but it's not as efficient. If I'm sucking through my mouth and pinching my cheeks off, I'm doing a lot of work to change the pressure and volume of that air that's coming in. And it's more about creating tension in my body as I try and get it to start releasing, you know, hormones and then start to get my brain to start pumping out catecholamines to be able to help me lift, you know, with everything that I've got, but it's not an efficient application. So the thoughtful practice of preparing for that, where you are using that nasal activity to be able to, excuse me, align the structures that you have, ensure that you're not pumping out too much CO2. It's one of the things that, again, that level of CO2 in your body is more of the register of a bad day. So like when you're holding your breath and your CO2 level rises, it gets to a certain point where it goes, hey, so I'm down here and I just want to let you know, you should probably take a breath because if you don't, things are going to get really hairy. And then eventually gets to a point where it's like, hey, sorry to bug you again, but you really need to breathe or we're going to probably pass out. That's kind of the register that that kicks it in. But when somebody overbreathes and puts too much oxygen into their system and drops that CO2 level down so low, that's where we get things like shallow water blackouts. So you don't have that, that warning sign to say, hey, just wanted to remind you, we're starting to run out uh, of capacity here. You should probably breathe soon so we can clear this out as your oxygen level is slowly slipping below hypoxic. And then you start to have, you know, the compartments shut down until you pass out. So being thoughtful with how you actually breathe is extremely important. So we don't want to mouth breathe ourselves out of there, drop my CO2 real low, and then reduce the affinity through the bore effect of oxygen to then mount to my hemoglobin in order to process in my body. Like it's not us just saying breathe through your nose because that's what yoga tells you. No, no, that's, that's not it at all. It is legitimately about trying to maintain the consistency between oxygen and carbon dioxide primarily, because a lot of us push out so much carbon dioxide that we reduce the ability of our body to handle more oxygen effectively. Because the irony of it is that you need carbon dioxide to make the system work and people don't entirely know this. And it's not necessarily a fault of them or a fault of what they didn't pay attention to in eighth grade biology class. It's just not something that's actively discussed. So in preparations for my workout, if I want to be able to be in that zone to hit a one RM and give it everything I've got explosively, I'm going to be focusing on breaths and fires. If I want to be focused on being able to maintain consistency throughout rounds, like a, a longer interval set workout, or maybe I'm doing, you know, 10 or 20 rep lifts, in that case, you know, I want to stay parasympathetic. I'm still breathing through my nose, breathing out through my nose, but now the beat time frame is uh, lower. I want to be, you know, less than 12 uh, breaths per minute. If I'm doing a preparation um, for that, I might do uh, what we refer to as a one, two, two, one breathing style, where I inhale a one count, I hold my inhale for a two count, I exhale for a two count, and then I hold my exhale for a one count. And that's a multiplier. So for instance, myself, I'll do like a four, eight, eight, four, four seconds to breathe in, hold my breath for eight seconds, eight seconds to slowly breathe it out and four seconds to hold it. And, and one thing I will uh, say as far as the breathing practices, you know, don't skip out on that exhale because while it seems like it doesn't make sense, 
the majority of your oxygen transference through your alveoli occurs on your breath out. And the reason we want to breathe back out through our nose instead of breathing in through our nose and breathing out through our mouth because we feel like we're pushing way too much through our nose on the way out, the reason we do that is you know, essentially twofold. We get this back pressure because now we've tightened down the area and it's like a nozzle. I've tightened down the area, so I'm changing the parameters of my velocity and my um, pressure in relationship to it. So I'm creating a higher positive pressure inside my own lungs and I'm passing more of that oxygen out at that, uh, that time. And at the same time, I get this vibrational stimulation of my paranasals, which allows for this uh, endosynthase that's in the paranasal to be stimulated. And what ends up falling out is nitric oxide. Well, nitric oxide is a vasodilator. So in those cases, I'm basically opening up my bronchial tubes on that next inhale, because as I've exhaled through my nose, I've stimulated and rolled that around. So when I breathe back in through my nose, I pull all that NO in with the rest of my oxygen and my body gets to use it. So I not only increase my bronchial tube size and my capability there, but I'm vasodilating and allowing myself to have more room to pump more nutrients throughout my body. And this is the stuff that you know I'm not making it up because we like to hum through our noses and stuff, but there is work out of the Karolinska Institute that, that defines this, that oftentimes you get a 15 times multiplier uh, of that value if you hum. So one of the things that I like to do on my preparation pieces is an exhale hum. So it's just a vibrational hum, kind of like a mantra that a yoga person would do um, as I breathe out. And it sounds weird and it looks goofy and you got to get through the vanity of it. But so what if anyone laughs at you? You're trying to get yourself prepared. Um, so other than that, I also use similar breathing functions for when I do hot and cold work. Uh, I do a, a nice bath every single day for at least four minutes at less than 32 degrees. And I use a parasympathetic breathing cycle in there. And then I try and fight against the parasympathetic <laughs> results to focus myself in um, while I'm in that uh, position. And then I also do a lot of work with uh, apnea tables. So being able to work on length of breath hold and then faster recovery time. It's essentially the types of stuff that um, free divers use, but now I'm trying to use it to help just develop my own capacity for oxygen so that when I'm actually training, I try and at least have this toolkit of developed skills, just like any other sport that you're trying to use, to use them at different times. And one of the things that you know my mentor uh, for the longest time has been Brian McKenzie and him and Rob Wilson uh, put together this art of breath practice where they've been trying to help teach and explain these things. And one of the pieces that Rob worked on most recently is the development of this gears piece where you're looking at breathing from the different layers of breathing. You know, if I'm talking to you right now, breathing through my nose in and out super easy. But as I start to pick up that heart rate, you know, maybe it's through my nose uh, quicker and out through my nose quicker as opposed to slow and slow. Maybe now I'm moving into a position where I'm through my nose and out my mouth. And then, you know, I'm getting into maybe the maximum condition where I am through my mouth on both occasions. There's a lot of these different step functions that go with it. But the reason that you want to practice these things is just like the reason you practice a push-up, the reason you practice a pull-up, the reason you practice a squat. However, the difference between this and all of those things is quite simply that you are always breathing. You are not always squatting. You are not always pressing. You are not always swimming. You are not always running. You're not always cycling, but you are always breathing. And so why would we not want to invest a high level of our skill, focus, and time to managing effective 
practices of breathing work in order to retain those benefits throughout our exercise. Because as soon as we get lost in our exercise, just like those crew members that we're trying to pass information onto, when we start to disappear because we start to get into an anaerobic environment or burning resources and our brain's compartmentalizing as it tries to use less and less you know, glucose in order to perform its functions so that it can let your body do what it needs to do. As we get in those circumstances, we need to have this honest, intrinsic quality to ourselves, this essentially instinctive reaction to know here's where I use my breathing. Here's where I can now take some manual control over this car and write this ship while the, the AI system that I've developed over my life of not really thinking about it tries to wreak havoc on it. So for those listening who are wondering like, you know, is breathing worth it? Remember, it's literally something that you're doing all the time. And unlike the ability to just suddenly stop your heart or start it or accelerate it, this does kind of give you that control function over your heart, over your processing capabilities, over your body. But it is the one thing that you can really practice that is a skill to be used in all avenues of preparation, whether it's myself getting ready for a meeting. If I get super nervous, which it doesn't happen as much anymore, but if I'm getting super nervous before something, you know, a one, two, two, one or a one, two, two, two breathing cycle, it pulls me back into where I need to be. I get that parasympathetic draw and I'm not amped coming into the meeting where I might be more susceptible to negative patterns where I'm not gathering all the information. So it's not just about training, but it is about living. You want to work on those skills that you use more often as in every day, right? Yep. No, I mean, that's, that's a major reason I decided to jump more into it because it is a function you're doing nonstop. You mentioned your Garmin device, and you also mentioned earlier when dealing with the astronauts, kind of the key data you guys are looking at. What are some key things you think people really need to start paying attention to, whether that be heart rate, HRV, um, caloric expenditure, all those things? What do you think is key and important? Well, I don't want to bust everyone's bubble from an HRV perspective, but I wouldn't necessarily say HRV is everything that everyone wants it to be. Um, it's the same thing with VO2 max. It's not that they're poor measures. It's just that they're susceptible and they're susceptible to some very different scenarios that can make them useful, but can make them give you information that can lead you the wrong way. Um, so I'm not a big HRV person. I use HRV with respect to certain things and it can do really, really well when we start talking about understanding and recovery during resting periods. But most of the time when you're, for instance, using your Garmin device to capture something like heart rate or heart rate variability, don't trust those. I mean, you, you just can't. Optical heart rate off of your wrist is shit. It is. And if you think for a moment that it's accurate because it's this digital representation, uh, please, I'm trying to tell you it's not. Um, you have this little green LED that's trying to be able to pick up this information and you're hoping that there's no water in between your skin and the device. And I don't know how you are, but I sweat like a monster. <laughs> and I live in Houston, Texas, so the humidity is even worse. So my, my data is almost shit from the moment I start. So unless I'm laying in bed with my hand effectively pinched up against it and dry, I'm not going to get really high quality heart rate. And there are improved functions for things like in-ear heart rate for optical, uh, the chest strap for heart rate that get you closer to it and they can be a little bit more dependable. And those things I do like. So I like being able to address my heart rate and know what that is, but more so from a standard function of, I want to know when it escapes itself. And over time, I've developed the, the skills to know that when my mouth 
starts to open, <laughs> I've reached my C point. So I'm starting to get to that transitionary point between my aerobic and my anaerobic conditioning systems where I'm shifting away from oxygen as the primary fuel source into more of that glucose-driven mechanism. And in those cases, or should say glycogen-driven mechanism, in those cases, I'm, I'm trying to use kind of my body's awareness, having investigated the data for long enough. Because the one thing you don't want to get in the habit of is you don't want to get in the habit of just being, you know, entirely engorged in data where you're just staring at all kinds of screens and wondering which ones are going to be there. You, you again, have to have this introspective quality. So heart rate's a big one. Um, I use temperature a lot. And while the Garmin doesn't do a fantastic job because it's trying to just get an external temperature, and I say that it doesn't do a fantastic job, it's not anything against Garmin. Really, the only way to get temperature of the body is to insert a suppository that doesn't sound like a fun thing to do every Tuesday. So I've decided to skip out of that one, um, but at least trying to understand when I'm in the sauna, for instance, what is my localized skin temperature? Because I know I'm going to be in a corresponding place from a transference of that heat energy. So if I'm now putting myself up to 110 degrees relative to my watch, okay, now I've reached an ideal spot where I wanted to be in the sauna before I go jump in the cold. And so now I want to pull my body or my, my hand temperature at least 50 degrees of change. You know, so that means I need to get below 60. All right, well, do I want to go even further today and go down 60 degrees and get to 50? So I use it as a kind of comparative measure because I know that the, the heat transfer across my watch is going to be the same in those two different situations. It's going to be consistently similar inside the sauna every time I compare it to the sauna, and it's going to be consistently similar inside the water every time I compare it in the water. Heat transfer is just based on time and the delta separation between the two items, right? So it allows me to be a little bit more thoughtful than saying, all right, my water is 32 degrees. What does that mean? How long do I need to be in here? Well, it, it matters how hot I was coming into it. Um, so I use temperature a little bit more than I think uh, other people do. Breathing frequency is a tough one to kind of uh, associate to because not a lot of devices that create it, but you can think about it by just pausing to see how long it, it takes you to accomplish a breath. Um, and how many breaths do you think you accomplished in 15 or 30 seconds? That one is a, a useful metric to me. But I will say that a lot of the things that I want to look at, they just don't exist right now. And that's kind of the, the fun of what we're doing is to say, I really want to know my CO2 level, like really badly. How do I know that? How do I find out what that level of carbon dioxide is in my system? And how do I understand what my intracellular and extracellular buffering mechanisms are uh, around the acidity that comes off of that process? Things like the bicarbonate levels in, in my body. How do I understand how much I'm processing and how quickly is that related to breathing frequency and tidal volume? That's what we're looking at right now. Uh, we have a project at NASA that we're trying to work on with one of the interns. Uh, that's called Project Spiritum, where we're trying to say, is there a correlation between breathing frequency and tidal volume exchanges based on the performance that you have using an apprentice algorithm where we're not telling it what the reward function is, but instead we're trying to let the system guess what the reward function is by following the you know an expert level maneuver. Um, what What is it going to say that the body is actually trying to do? I, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because <laughs> I don't know if perception is having a bigger impact into our ability to distinguish those uh, variables or not. But so even though I have this, this intense capability to gather all these pieces of data, 
the way I look at it has always been kind of like when you first start weighing your food, the whole point of the data at the beginning is to allow you to like weighing your food, understand what a portion size is until you know what a portion size is in and out. And so every time I get to a point where I really understand that introspective element or the flag in my body that equates to the data points I'm seeing and I've practiced and refined that, now I know. Like I know when my internal temperature is too hot and I will literally stop the workout and sit in front of the fan. And my wife always thinks it's funny because she's like, oh, you're giving up again? You know, but, but I'm not. I just know that at that point, there's negative returns. I'm not getting the value that I want out of this, this experience because it's not about burying yourself into the ground. If I'm trying to get stronger while being able to, to provide myself cardiovascular endurance, it makes no sense to be in a broken metabolic position where I start to make bad techniques and where I'm not actually able to buffer that high level acidity around specific muscle groups. You know, those are the things that lead to things like rhabdomyolysis. And if I'm not thoughtful about what that feels like, because I haven't looked at my watch to be like, oh, so this is what 103 degrees in my wrist feels like, you know, um, that's how I've been using my data. So heart rate, I think is still an effective one if you have a substantial source to get it from. I think breathing rate is something that you can manually measure and investigate. I appreciate temperature because temperature is such a big deal on your body. It only takes small changes to acidity and temperature in your uh, body's core to cause major changes into how it responds to its ecosystem. Um, those are the ones that I think I, I use more often. I use my blood pressure a lot too. Um, and that one is just from a standpoint of understanding how my body's responding to particular stressors and also to give myself some insight into things like, am I parasympathetic or sympathetic? Uh, I've looked at a lot of EDA elements. I think they're really awesome. I just don't personally have an EDA device because they're like $1,400 to get a really decent one. What are EDA so, devices? Electrodermal activity. Uh, so basically it's the new collective name for galvanic skin response. And what you're looking for in that case is I'm looking for the skin conductance to go down or go up. And so as you get goosebumps, for instance, and your, your pores close, your skin conductance goes down. Oddly enough, the, the conductance underneath and uh, the skin goes up sixfold, but at the skin surface itself, it, it stays lower. And so now I'm identifying that you're in a parasympathetic state through that uh, electrodermal activity. And that's kind of this quick notion of arousal states that allows you to notice that, okay, I may be at 160 beats per minute, but I'm now starting to move in a parasympathetic state. So I know my body's about to, to move towards a recovery mode. That's good. I feel comfortable. Whereas maybe I'm at 180 beats and I'm trying to calm down and I, my EDA is through the roof and I'm going, shit, this is a bad deal. I need to start doing some breathing exercises. I need to start doing some meditative practice uh, concepts here because if I don't, I'm just running my engine hot. It's like being in a car that's giving you that, you know, the little uh, uh, indicator saying hot, 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 right? Like we're burning up, the radiator is about to explode. You need to calm down. That's what the EDA kind of helps give you. It gives you that internal recognition, uh, for at least for right now, of what your arousal state is, which I think is extremely efficient. Uh, and it's very easy to gather a high quality data point. And that's what makes it super effective. But sadly enough, again, I don't have a, a $1,400 thing. <laughs> I used to be big into SpO2 until I realized that it's not about oxygen. It's about CO2. 
Um, so I just use SpO2 as a indicator of reference for breathing exercises to show how you can change the oxygen saturation levels by intelligent breathing practices and how you can control and navigate that. But it's less about being an indicator of success or failure criteria. You mentioned the elimination of that. Is there anything else you've eliminated in the past year that based on new research you just found irrelevant? Man, I, I don't necessarily think, I'm trying to think of things I would have gotten rid of. I mean, I got rid of eating it. Okay. The only thing I think I've really gotten rid of is food. Um, and I don't say that like I starved myself to death, but I used to uh, eat every two hours. You know, that consistent plan of I'm going to provide optimized nutrition across this diverse standpoint at every two hour intervals in order to ensure that my body's not looking for food, but it's being appropriately filled and timed. Uh, and I switched entirely over to basically intermediate fasting. So there's this uh, that intermittent fasting concept where now I, I don't eat until dinner five days a week. And, you know, so basically 24 hour fasts almost every day. It's more like the, the 24 warrior, but it's more like a 22, four, a 22, two or 23 or 21, three. Uh, and then on the weekends, I kind of allow myself a little bit more flexibility relative to nutrition. And that's just because I've seen a ton of benefits and a ton of research that have indicated how intermittent fasting is uh, beneficial to your cellular life and trying to prevent your body from that long-term decay. Because at this point, I'm, I'm making that transition. I'm making that transition in my life, and I have been for a few years where I start to go, I was trying to be an athlete or at least seem like I could hang with the athletes for so long, and now I'm trying to go, you know what? No, what I'm actually more excited about is the ability to be functional throughout my life and to stimulate the benefits to my brain. And so the benefits from an intermittent fasting standpoint, from a cognitive standpoint, became my focus because I felt like my tool was not how, how fast my friend was, but my tool is more about what I can use my brain for. Um, so I did change that in my life. Gotcha. Yeah, no, over the past year, that, that shift's kind of happened for me as well. And not approaching things necessarily from trying to be the best athlete, but how can I function better at a later date? Um, after those 22 <laughs> hours of fasting, what's your, uh, what's your meal look like? Um, well, let's see, what did we have last night? <laughs> last night was actually a really fun night. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we have one each week where we basically do breakfast for dinner. Um, and we had like these, uh, uh, English muffins that were like limited edition, maple and honey or something like that. So it wasn't really the normal meal structure, but uh, normally for a meal standpoint might be like, uh, you know, salmon with a salad, or we had steaks with some balsamic uh, vegetables. Uh, I make like a deer meat and lamb gyro meat that will have like a tzatziki sauce and some Greek salad, or maybe it's uh, making um, some type of uh, veggie dish with uh uh, chicken or like a, gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the things we've done recently. I, I like to be very experimental with what I eat. So it's not to say that it's going to be everything that is flat and bland and disgusting. It's going to have an appropriate amount of carbohydrates and fats and proteins to make up for my daily allowance. Um, and it's not going to have a ton of starches. We don't do the whole, you know, eat whatever the hell you want to eat thing. We my wife is a lot better at keeping me restrained. So it's, it's very much so it has that, you know, quote unquote paleo essence, but at the same time, I don't think that, um, things like 
potatoes or bread are the devil. You know, gluten to me is not the devil. If you don't handle gluten, sure, gluten's the devil. Just like if you don't handle strawberries, well, strawberries are the devil. But if you do handle those things, you you need to understand, you know, how you're you're delivering them to yourself. Do you need more fast carbohydrates based on the fact that you just got done working out and you're trying to quickly refill those? Or do you looking at more of a sustained piece? The reason I like to have the breakfast uh, at, in the nighttime is if we typically align it to be after leg day, then I'm going to get a slow drip of that casein protein as I go to sleep. That is going to allow me to try and fuel more of that damaged tissue because of the you know, major hormone modifiers that come with things like squats and deadlifts. So there isn't at least a thoughtful optimization to that. But at the same time, I'll openly admit that, you know, if I want a handful of peanut M&Ms, I'm going to eat a handful of peanut M&Ms. I'm not going to take that away from myself, but I'm going to make sure that I understand why I'm eating those things and what I'm eating and how it affects my performance such that if I take that gamble, I know why I'm taking that gamble. Um, Plus, I just love peanut M&Ms. So (laughs) (laughs) nothing wrong with that. So Cody, I want to talk about mastery. What's your definition of mastery? Um, to say that it's just a, a very simple definition would be uh, extremely difficult. Um, but from a global perspective, uh, the the idea of mastery to me kind of comes in two flavors. So you've got mastery when it comes to a particular skill. And that's to say that you know, somebody can invest those 10,000 hours that uh, we're used to hearing about and become masterful in a particular skill set. But to me, the true concept of mastery to become a master uh, is a realization in a process of creating value systems and skill sets across a very broad spectrum of thought and inclusion that you can use to leverage pretty much all the information that you have coming into you. So you know, a short way of saying, try and be the jack of all trades. Um, it, the difficult part for a lot of people in mastery is that they always assume that you know a master is really skilled in one particular topic. Uh, but from the research that I've done and from the things that I've examined and, and trying to obsess over this, uh, I've noticed that it's far less a single tactical observation or a single set of uh, expertise it is a very broad uh, range view that we see uh, of individuals who have excelled across many areas. And while they may seem um, diverse and unconnected, when you really kind of pop open the hood, you notice that the interconnectivity is everywhere. So I guess that's kind of a, uh, a warm bubble of mastery for a description. I mean, you mentioned how this is something you're obsessing over. Are Is this one of the key things you're obsessing over right now, or do you have a broad spectrum of things that you obsess over? Uh, this is one of the things, if not the thing, taking the highest priority bandwidth. Uh, but just as I identified in uh, the way that I've been trying to look at things, and as you suggested, there's a lot of things that I've realized that I've been trying to uh, reach out to and and process for, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it mastery. It wasn't as though I woke up yesterday and was like, I'm going to be a master in all these things. Um, it's just, there's so many different pieces of information that once I catch a hold of something that really interests me, uh, I just, I can't help but dive in and I just let myself do it. Um, and so, you know, for instance, in the previous conversation we had relative to 
exercise and exercise hardwares and those kinds of things. You know, those were pieces where I felt, you know, not very long ago that that was the thing. That was the thing that was going to drive my thought process, and that was going to be what really diagnosed my future. Uh, and then suddenly, I tried to understand what it meant to have something be your mastery, and realized that what I thought I knew was misleading. And so I became more interested in that entire concept than just one particular skill. Uh, so mastery right now is the thing that I've been investing in pretty much any and all free time that I can get uh, to do. And it helps support all of the rest of the things that I do uh, professionally and personally, my family, my friends, uh, my existence with humanity, all those things are benefited from it. If we're looking at a 30,000 foot view on this, how do you first even begin with with trying to figure out what true mastery is? Are you studying certain individuals? Are you really looking inside yourself? What are you doing there to begin? When I first started, uh, I did what uh, I, I always find myself doing is I'll catch on to one little piece of something that's said, and then I just start diving into a, a deep hole of research. And it's one of those things where the, the internet is a very deadly place, right? I, I have at my fingertips pretty much any piece of information that I could ever really want to have as long as I'm willing to put the time in. And so what I kind of started out with this mastery concept was to say, let's figure out where it came from. Uh, I do this a lot, particularly with words, where I'll like look up a word and go, okay, what's the actual root of the word? Where did it come from? You know, typically it's Latin. But where did it come from? Why does it exist? What are the roots? What have we done to understand it? By doing that same process of saying, okay, I know what I've been told mastery is. I know what I've learned throughout these years, but let's play the devil's advocate. And this is something that I think that is important for every human being to do is, you know, people are going to give you a lot of information. Uh, there's a lot of shit out there as opposed to real stuff. Um, you're going to be misled and it's not necessarily because people are trying to, uh, mislead you for the sake of deception. Uh, but we have this, you know, uh, this background of our own cultures and our own traditions that shape who we are and shape the mindsets and the information that we, uh, see and, and run into. And so that's what we're going to deliver to other people. So in the sake of mastery, I, I said, no, you know, I'm going to wipe away what my preconceptions are. And I just want to understand where did it start? And so I dove into uh, first and foremost things like an apprenticeship. And when you dive in an apprenticeship, you start finding out, you know, kind of who those key masters were that followed that kind of apprentice uh, paradigm. Uh, I got really deep into things like uh, Miyamoto Musashi, uh, who's the greatest Japanese swordsman um, that's ever lived. Uh, going into things like Leonardo da Vinci right now, I'm, you know, hot and heavy into his uh, bibliography by uh, Walter Isaacson. And uh, when I got into that portion of it, I realized that, okay, these are examples of mastery and I can glean information from this. Uh, but what what is, it, again, the true origin? Like, where, where are we going? Where do we come from? And so I started pulling myself, you know, even further into the research and started getting into how we define, you know, uh, a master's of science and, and educational programs and how we built doctorates and how those reflect the apprenticeship process. And I think we can get to that in a second, but I then analyzed that apprenticeship process and looked at, you know, guild structures. And that's basically where it all started. 
And as I navigated the guild structures and saw the relationships of where those things went throughout time and how they spread and how they changed and what the different entities and key components were, I was basically trying to build the story of what the apprenticeship was. How did somebody go from being just a normal, and normal is a harsh word, but it, it works best in the context, a normal person to become a person of mastery? What did they have to go to? What are the consistent phases? And let's not assume that uh, any of the things I've been told about what an apprentice is are real, but let's just say what was the the actual you know, mirror finish intention before we decided to apply our own relationships to it. And what I realized was, and we've got some some very easy concepts to begin with, things like you should be spending, you know, seven to ten years in the apprenticeship phase. You should be, you know, essentially trying to develop those quote unquote ten thousand hours that are always reflected to. Uh, but that's where things changed as far as my understanding is that you basically have this idea that after seven to 10 years, you get to that 10,000 level and your brain from the standpoint of why 10,000 is a number is that, you know, we start basically doing most of our uh, information processing kind of live and in our uh, conscious mind, as opposed to our subconscious. We haven't built those intuitive sets where we built the actual biological structures to support those memory patterns and those decision trees. Um, And as we go throughout time and spend the immense amount of time focused on those specific skill set developments, we eventually make them hardwired into our brain. So it goes from just being, you know, quote unquote reactionary to more intuitive where we don't have to have a rationalization of everything because we've rationalized enough of the elements so many times that we intuitively know what the rational explanation should be. but it was my it was my understanding that you know after you get those seven to ten years, then you know you basically do the mastery, and you are master. But that's not the case. We've kind of left out as a um, worldview this idea of the journeyman phase, where you're you know essentially the first seven to ten years are just to be able to build yourself into a position that allows you to begin executing the craft on your own. And at that phase, your intent is to actually go on a journey. Um, and for a standpoint of things like the Miyamoto Masashi piece, it was uh, the samurai would go you know, travel the land and the monks did the same concept where they would go on these you know, essentially um, exploratory walks as they were, where they would try and go to other people practicing the same art or different arts and try and massage into their own skill set, these other phases or views or lenses to allow themselves to grow infinitely stronger in that particular skill. And the intent of this was always that after you had done this for, you know, three, four years, you would then return back to home and you would begin process and work towards this mastery delivery. And by that, I mean, you were intended to create something relative to your skill that identified how you want to show to the world that you have uh, evolved to a point of mastery. And this article or this object or this painting or this uh, music or whatever it was, this craft, you would deliver it to a bunch or a, a panel, I guess is the best way to look at it, a panel of masters. So you would be judged by those peers who would be welcoming you into their ranks uh, and one of the very unique features of it was that it was not intended to be like a you get to try a few times concept. 
you basically tried once. And if you failed, then you were you know, almost outcast. And so what that said to me was that you go through this journey and yeah, you take these four years circling around and going to these other places and you come back and you start developing your expertise. But it, it became so emblazoned in the process that you really needed to know when you had reached that level before you would ever consider trying to present to that master panel. You knew you had to be at a, a level beyond the expectations of yourself and others from when you started the process. And a lot of that is you know, kind of missed anymore. But at that point, once you presented that information, you know, the masters select you and then you become a part of that master panel. And so this essentially was the core origin of how we created an apprenticeship process into mastery and the realization that as an apprentice, you needed to be surrounded by others of your skill level, others just barely higher than you, those journeymen, uh, and then those masters such that you could have different infusions throughout that process. Um, and kind of what happened was we created these arts and crafts and guilds to protect these skill sets and to hand the, handle this information from one expert to the to these you know evolving young individuals as they came through. And that process of the journey ended up resulting in, for instance, uh, individuals gaining information that were kind of trade secrets to a particular group. Um, we even got into phases where uh, some of the, the early mentions of open sharing of information became where during these presentations of the master's essentially thesis, any individual could come and listen and participate and then people would scribe and record the information uh, in order to then deliver it for everyone else's uh, ingestion. And this seems like a great idea. I mean, that's to me how you're supposed to do this. And it's one of the things that you know we can talk about a little bit later if you want to, but uh, that open sharing is an important part of the process to it, the success of what it was intended to be. But needless to say, we ended up getting into a position where individuals didn't like that they worked so hard for this information and somebody else got to profit off of their um, diligence. And so we started then seeing these um, protections provided by church and state that allowed for a guild to operate as the sole provider of a specific service. And this is essentially the origins of intellectual property. And the irony to me is that intellectual property was not about trying to uh, generate income or make it a viable product for somebody. Instead, the patent process was purely about, you know, protecting your acorns. And it was all about how to keep other people away from the information. Um, and it, from there, it kind of continued to tumble. We get into situations where those guild structures started kind of getting into you know, disagreements with one another and they would try and you know, stack the odds against the other groups by getting more support from you know, political lobbying and, and from providing things to the, the church. And we started seeing these you know, essentially formations kind of pop out that you know, we kind of call corporations today. These entities where groups of people get to sit in a boardroom and get to make decisions on what is the information that's allowed to be released to the world and protect those trade secrets and only share that information with a select few. Uh, and so what we what started as this process of trying to allow a master who had spent so much time developing 
a skill and a knowledge base that was immensely important to pass on to future generations and then allowing for a navigation for how that information would be delivered to other individuals eventually became you know essentially a, a corporate structure of protection and secrecy and um, power the idea to me that an individual group of people who has not talked with the rest of the world gets to have the choice and decision power while sitting in a room uh, as to whether or not an idea of a particular merit is going to be delivered to the rest of the world based on profitability and value sharing blows my mind. You know, the I know for a fact, and it's not to say that I've been in these situations, but it's just, it's, it's math, it's probability. The probability is way too high, and it suggests that there are things that could have changed the way the world works in an entirely different way. And still, even in these moments as we're talking right now, that people in boardrooms are choosing to leave on the table, throw in the trash can, clear away in the, uh, the mailbox, and we don't ever get to see them. Because if it's not profitable, then it's not worth investing in. And if it's not worth investing in, then no one gets to have that because more than likely, if it is supportive and helpful to an entire group of people and is very broad and very flexible and very open, it's not going to be very profitable. And therefore, these, these solution sets of great, wonderful ideas become you know, essentially their, their garbage. And that whole mechanism is kind of how we now see mastery today. You see all these master's classes, and I'm not knocking saying that every single person does it wrong by any means, but it's a money-making engine. You know, it's these really hyper-successful people trying to say that in an hour and a half class of talking about how they went about things and their life story, that they're going to be able to demonstrate to you a, a level of mastery that you wouldn't have otherwise received and then they're going to make it a profitable organization off of that and it doesn't really deliver anything besides you know just another media ingestion a a netflix for somebody who wants to say they're trying to become a master you know and that's that's what we have as mastery today we're teaching kids that when you go through um college that you can be a master uh, that's another part that i got into relative to the research was to say you know, what is a university came from this essence of the universal man. And the idea of the universal man was to create educated individuals who had a broad range of um, background and not just, for instance, science, but sciences, arts, theology, humanities. These were the kinds of things being taught to these individuals. And the irony is, is that they weren't taught to them such that they could be declared masters. They went to these university education sources to be able to gain the information and skill sets and backbone to simply begin an apprenticeship. We've entirely flipped it around. We've now made it such that you go through education and after you get through K through 12, you might get that first semester, maybe two semesters of college where it's a little bit more of a diverse education source, but we quickly try and shuttle people down into their expertise and start to stack and build this um, mechanism for technical or local expertise. And when you get done at, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old, 
uh, somebody's calling you a master of science. Um, I, I just, I don't think that there's many masters at 22 or 23. There are very few. There are very few people who have had that, you know, savant nature to start when they're four or five at a particular skill and invest their entire existence into it. These are, you know, men and women who have just given a little bit of their life. You know, most of it was trying to figure out who they were and what was meaningful to them, not how that skill has an expertise quality to it. And so all of this research then basically left me with a realization that where we are with mastery um, has skewed significantly from the path. And I think that there are ways to then try and go back, unearth that origin story and be a little bit more sensible with how we deliver it such that we can actually give people the skills and tools necessary to migrate through an apprenticeship into a mastery and understand what it means. Um, and depending on where you want to go with this, I, I then basically jumped off with uh, values to determine kind of my own understanding of things and then basically started breaking down mastery into phases. And so when I got done, I had six phases and I felt they did, they classified how the mastery plan worked and these six values that go with them. And that was kind of the, the outcome from all the research that I went through. Yeah. Can we hit on those six phases of mastery? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'll say this is kind of uh, the, the first public unfurling of them. Um, I talk about them with my friends and family, but uh, one of the things I'm going to be doing here at the end of next month is actually going to talk with uh, the engineering students uh, for the incoming freshman class at uh, CU. And this is the entire plan for my, my presentation is to try and help these kids see at least the story. I'll call it the story. I have to thank Erin uh, McKenzie for this. She got done hearing me present this and was like, you know, I, I like your story. Um, and the irony of all, all of this is, you know, everything is a story. So this is the story that I have seen come up with mastery. Um, and even so much as listening to, you know, a good resource for a lot of people who are listening, Robert Greene's mastery, you can say what you want to about Robert Greene. Um, but the book mastery goes through a, a very good assessment of some of these uh, different phases. And he obviously looks at it with his own lens, um, but still a good resource the, the six phases that I identified were basically me trying to go, if I'm trying to help somebody go through mastery and I want them to feel in control, what are the problems that they're going to face? Because if I'm going to create solutions, then I need to understand the problems. And so the phases became less about, you know, this is the newborn phase. This is the toddler phase, right? It became instead more of these are the phases of problems that you will face throughout it. And then the values are designed to help stimulate success in those particular problem situations in order to help you navigate through them. But ultimately, as we will, as you know, you find with people, we often lose ourselves in one of the early phases and never really reach completion. So the phases that I've defined, uh, the first one is is fear. So this is, uh, and I'll compare them for an easy sake of conversation, uh, zero to 10 years, 10 to 20 years, 20 to 30 years, 40 to 50 years, 56 years. That's not to say that these happen in 10 year chunks. It's just, I found that looking at someone's life gives a pretty good idea of, of what this means and how you might find it more frequently. So uh, fear is that zero to 10, you know, 
after we move out of that infant innocence, we essentially realize that the world is full of scary things, uh, things that we don't know. And so the the first problem that we face when trying to become masterful in something is a fear to even start or a fear that we'll fail or a fear that we won't succeed to the level that we believe or a f- fear that we're not equipped enough to do so. And that strong fear is a good protection mechanism in the fact that it keeps us from doing crazy stuff that we really wouldn't be able to do, like standing on the edge of a cliff and saying, jump, right? You're going to fly. Well, you're not going to fly. So it's a good thing to be afraid of. But it, it controls the littlest things. It controls us from saying, oh, you can't learn to play the guitar because you're just going to suck at it. Um, so we, we go through this fear phase from that zero to 10 kind of, of mindset. And then the, in the 10 to 20-year-old mindset, you can kind of uh, see what that person looks like or, or how you were in your 10 to 20s. During that time frame is the boredom phase. So if you've moved through fear, you get into this phase where you've done the skill now and you've learned some cool things, and you see all these other cool things that are going on, but you're still stuck with the basics, and you just get bored. And people are trying to have you hammer them over and over and over and over again, and you're just, you know, it's it's not clicking. You don't want to do it. You get tired of it, and this is where we lose even more people, right, is that if you survive the fear and you at least started, when you get to the boredom, you're not going to continue. You're not going to push through that because, you know, it's it's not worth the investment of your time. You don't necessarily see uh, the benefit on the other side. So if you're successful at getting through the boredom and you continue to truck and continue to practice and continue to learn, then you get into what I call the frustration phase. And so in this frustration phase, we start to see ourselves where our mindset has reached a level of interaction and appreciation with that skill that our body can't keep up with. And so this really does you know, reflect on that, um, that brain biological structures piece of the, the 10,000 is an hours rule is to say that we have not spent enough time in our uh, reworking of that skill set yet to really adapt the, the patterns and paradigms that we have in our brain with how our body and our muscles and our responses function to that system. And so we see this huge delta separation between where you think you should be and where you are. And that tears a lot of people up. You know, no one likes to think that they are just so far below the expectation of themselves. And if they don't understand how to see the the path to close that gap, then it becomes an extremely intimidating. Uh, if you're able to successfully continue to manage that, you know, now we basically move into what is the uh, 30s to 40s kind of chunk of your life. And that's when I, I think that we end up seeing a lot of hubris. That's the biggest problem. So you have to imagine, you know, you've gone through the skill, you've, you've, you've fought through the fear, you've trucked through the boredom, you've dealt with the frustration, and you've gotten to a level where your skill set is sufficiently high. And what you know in your brain as the information to know is you know more, right? You know, you know at least enough, if not more than what you thought you were ever going to know. Uh, And that's deadly. The reason it's deadly is because if I don't have somebody to keep me in check in this phase, which this is the phase I believe that the mentor part of the apprenticeship process becomes extremely important. You know, you need essentially somebody in there to tell you that you're a piece of shit. And I truly mean it that way. Like someone who's going to break you soullessly. For me, that was, you know, my mentor, Brian McKenzie. We got into those phases where he wouldn't let me 
play my bullshit cards. He wouldn't co-sign for it. He challenged me to not accept success, to not allow myself to escape through what I thought I was able to understand. And we don't entirely have that yet. I think that we have, uh, at least from a social media standpoint, an attempt at uh, the world to, to correct its own organism by saying, you know, now you're in this open source place where if you do something that is uh, hubristic, you're going to have somebody who points a finger at you and calls you out. But the problem that social media has is that when somebody points a finger at you, then there's, you know, a million other people that are pointing fingers at them. And so it's not really a productive environment. So we end up seeing people who, you know, essentially go unchecked and their hubris goes through the roof. They feel that they're on top of the world. And the problem that exists there is that when you feel that you are untouchable and that there is nothing more to learn, you know, as the, the saying goes, if you think there's nothing more to learn, that's the day you start dying. There is no benefit in assuming that you have every piece of information. And so if you succeed in going through hubris, and I think that that's where we, we lose most of the rest of people. We lose a lot of fear, you know, even more at boredom. The rest of the real strong suitors fall out at frustration. And then those top echelon expertise individuals collapse under their own hubris. We see it time and again of people that rise metrically and fall tragically. And that's because when you get to the end of that, if you were to have somebody keep you in check or by the luck of the draw, you happen to survive being a, an arrogant asshole, you, you get to this place where now you kind of look out across the landscape and go, so now what? And that's what I refer to as the orientation phase. It's the point of the experience where now your responsibility is to examine the mastery of others so that you don't look at your landscape from only one particular lens, the lens that you've developed over all this uh, trial and tribulation, you now must lean on the other masters. This is when the masters within the guild become important. Uh, this is when the masters just around that you see become important. And this is essentially kind of moving towards that, that journeyman type structure phase where you need to navigate and go out and get lost. Um, but the reason that this is performed is because you're trying to balance out the equation. Uh, the way I like to look at it is, is a, if I had you um, try and imagine building up a strong structure, you don't want to have a foundation that is not wide, right? The wider the base, the better. Think about a pyramid. It's a super successful building strategy as opposed to a, a spear, right? If I dig the spear hard enough into the ground, sure, I can be successful, but as soon as I would lose one brick of that, you know, the whole entire foundation comes tumbling down. And so this orientation requires you to have that diverse viewpoint of the world and start to make uh, associations with other masters, but also trying to realize that, you know, as I've kind of uh, lived with and, and brought into my own personal mantra is that everything is everything. All of these things are interconnected. It uh, seems like a stretch to a lot of people, but the skills of learning how to play the piano are the same as the skills of trying to become a great writer. Uh, the same as the skills of trying to become extremely capable as a, uh, you know, a, a therapist, all of those things, they all follow the same structures. And so if you make it through the orientation phase, then you move into what I will call the last phase, um, you know, your 50s, 60s type uh, mindset, which is secrecy. 
and this goes back to that idea of the boardrooms that get to protect the ideas and, and don't release them to the world is to say, you've done all of this work. You've been successful at managing the expectations, keeping yourself in check, and then allowing yourself to orient with the rest of the world and the rest of the masters to create this really great backbone structure of your skill and its interrelations to the rest of humanity and the rest of thought. And suddenly you get to go, do I share it? Do I let everyone know? Because I had to do a whole lot of work to get here and maybe they're not ready, right? And so it's not just saying that secrecy is only a thing of, of pure selfishness or deceit where someone's like, you know, I work super hard and no one else is allowed to have this. But, you know, we failed at making a really good reward mechanism. You know, our reward mechanism right now is, is profit, it's money. If we had a, a reward mechanism of truth and honesty, it would be an entirely different process, but you have money. So suddenly you're going, you know, I worked really, really hard and I don't want to be disrespectful, but this is my opportunity to capitalize on the invested time to be able to make money for myself and my family to support the future generations of, of who it is. Um, it's, it's those kinds of environments where you don't feel like you're trying to be secret, but suddenly you are. Um, or the third case I found is that you don't want to give something to somebody because you're not sure they're going to be able to use it the right way. The example here is that we always like to say that somebody can't handle a tool, but human ingenuity says that no matter how you design the tool, we're going to use it how we want to use it. And that means for good and bad. So the, one of the examples I give is a pen. A pen has the ability to write a great literary source, something that moves emotions and changes uh, worldviews. It also has the ability to, you know, stab someone. <laughs> it's not what the pen was designed for, but if you want to, you can stab somebody with a pen. And at the same time, you can also use a pen as an emergency tracheotomy tool. Those were not the original designs of the tool, but we found other ways to use it out of our own ingenuity. So to say that people should be allowed to, once they've reached this mastery and then have these immense skill sets and say, well, I don't think people are ready for what I've been able to understand. That's a hard decision process, but ultimately the right one to get through that problem statement is to realize and say that that's okay. Let people decide how they want to decide. The investment of your time was not for a reward of profit. It was not for a reward of fame. You know, it's, uh, it's the idea of uh, Jonas Salk who uh, invented the cure for polio, right? 20,000 some odd kids were dying every year, I think was the statistic. Or maybe it was every month. It was something outrageous, right? It, it was just tremendously terrible. And he invents this, uh, you know, cure and did not profit from it. He gave it to the world and said, this is my gift to humanity. And I think the cost numbers I saw for a little post were saying it's something along the lines of $4 billion that he would have made off of that. Um, that's something that a true master has to negotiate at the end of the process because the opposite of secrecy becomes the embodiment phase. And this is where it kind of differentiates between a individual skill and a collective mastery. And that's to say, when you get done mastering a skill, so as an example, I'll use Taekwondo. Um, that was what I did from basically four or five years old until I was 18. And I got really good at it. I had got good enough that relative to, you know, quote unquote, my rank, I was a master, right? But it wasn't 
my way of life. So you basically get this decision at the end. If you choose to move through secrecy, you can go to this embodiment phase. And it's not really a phase. It's the same phase, but it's just the, the kind of the, the tails to the heads of the coin. And embodiment means that either you can make it your life's work or you can just make it like a gauntlet, you know, something that you wear to go to the next thing. So, you know, Taekwondo at the time, I thought it was going to be my life's work. I thought I was going to turn into a Taekwondo instructor and, and that was going to be the deal. Uh, and it never became that. It became just a gauntlet. It became something that I use as a tool to help me process and learn and understand other skills and manage my time and thought process to become better at other things. It taught me discipline. It taught me self-control. It taught me the ability to negotiate all those other phases of going through the, the boredom and through the frustrations and not trying to get egotistical and then trying to understand how you know everything was related to everything else. And so that's where that kind of split happens. You got these six phases that don't just happen in a macroscopic level, but also on a microscopic level. And the way that I kind of view it is if I were to look at this as a zoomed out version of my life and had colors as an image, it's kind of like those uh, pictures on your wall where it's a picture of a bunch of other little pictures. So it might be a red square, but if you zoomed in really, really close, you might find that there's blues and greens and grays and silvers and teals and purples, you know, all kinds of other colors. But if you zoom far enough away, you can only see that red square. And so that's to say that throughout our life, we are starting many different skills at many different phases. It's not to say that zero to 10 years of age, you're just fear dominant, right? You might have moved on into boredom and into you know, maybe even frustration phases, depending on the devotion that you give yourself. And that's not also to say that, you know, when you're 30, 40 years old, you're only working on transitions between frustration and hubris. You could still be trying to learn new skills and being uh, and experiencing fear at those times. It's just that if you zoom out far enough, most of the skills fall into these kind of buckets because that's where you're generally starting them in your life. You're starting more skills when you're young and you're finishing more skills when you're older. And the game is to try and actually make sure that that color wheel, um, if we can look at it like a, a spectrum, you know, the, the UV spectrum, just because you get red, orange, yellow, you know, don't allow yourself to miss out on green, blue, indigo, and violet. It, you want to be able to reach that violet piece and reaching the end of that violet piece is exactly what I wanted to be able to try and understand in all this so that I could try and not only for myself, but for others say, you know, here's how we can negotiate through this process. Here's why things work, you know, um, and that's to say like fear, easy way to get through fear, just do it, right? Protect this house. Those are all really good slogans from really successful businesses that are driving at that core product of that first phase of problems. Um, the inspirational quotes, you know, that people read and post all over the place. That's a great way to get through fear. You can do it, you know? Everyone's trusting that you can succeed. Don't be, you know, overcome by emotion. Uh, I failed a th you know, 3,000 times before I was successful. All of those kinds of things kind of get you pumped up. And, you know, when we start seeing people fail at this frustration phase, we see that why is this successful business in society? Why is therapy so successful? Why are people like Tony Robbins who go out in front of everyone to help them try and connect the, the uh, divestment of their um, uh, mental side versus their physical side. How do we, we close that gap between understanding and knowledge? Well, that's a great mechanism for, you know, this 
whole self-improvement, self-dialogue um, market and why it's super big in the world. Um, we just don't have any really good mechanisms for the end. We've really failed at, at mentorship most recently, I think. Uh, I believe that people think that mentoring is just uh, letting someone shadow you, and that's not it. You need to be involved. Um, we've also missed out on the idea of masters trying to help infuse masters from other groups. We don't get masters together the way we should anymore. We get them together to make you know big dollars, but we don't get them necessarily together to just try and have open source conversation that could generate new thoughts and ideas to stimulate others. Uh, because you know we got to get some IP around that, right? You got to protect that that acorn. Uh, it's less about I just want the world to succeed. And it's more about how can we make sure that we can profit from this such that the model stays successful. Um, and ultimately that's what I'm hoping out of this process uh, to do is to say, how can we use these phases to create a support system for the, you know, the global uh, world chunk organism as it is, everyone in it, to be able to negotiate through these phases, to see how uh, masters communicate and learn the nuances, being able to watch them work and operate in some sort of open way. How can we process that? How can we create that ecosystem of open source thought and open source visualization of mastery such that it's not just one person or one group's entity to capitalize on? Um, so yeah, those, those are the phases. Thank you for sharing those phases. I'm, I'm very fascinated to, to hear the feedback uh, on your talk that you're going to give at CU, uh, I think, at the end of August. I'm curious. You mentioned one of your mentors, Brian McKenzie, and yep. I'm, I'm thinking for the listeners out there, and they're saying, here, Cody was able to get this unbelievable mentor. First off, how did you go about getting <laughs> that mentor, and then how do you maximize that relationship for both yourself and for Brian? Both of those are, are very good questions. Um, the, the way that I got my mentor is always a fun story. I think Brian uh, likes to tell it more than I do because it's more embarrassing for me and it's just a, a quick razz for him. Uh, but I, at the time in my life, I was trying to train, train for the world's toughest mutter. It was the very first one that had come out. Um, my best friend, uh, Adam Lover, and I had qualified for it. And... You know, basically all of a sudden we went from this five hour fun run kind of concept to this 24 hour torture race. And I didn't know how I was gonna train for it. Didn't really have any time. I had, you know, just started my own little family and was trying to balance work versus being home for the, you know, the wife and the kid. Uh, and then also being able to try and get my training in and the idea of spending three, four hours training every day in order to maximize my ability to handle a 24 hour race didn't make sense. Now I was throwing on a 30 pound vest and running half marathons like every other day, trying to do anything I could. And I stumbled upon this uh, concept of anaerobic uh, performance for aerobic benefit. And Brian was uh, the one to chase. He had you know, released information from a standpoint of running, how you could do these types of sprint intervals, the stuff that we saw with, you know, Tabata effects and how they could improve your general aerobic base. And that's what I needed. I needed something that I could perform, you know, high intensity, quick and focused, but would also help stimulate that long duration effort. And so my original run in with him had nothing to do with 
trying to uh, make him my mentor. Uh, it just had it to be a, I aligned with his view. And I think that's kind of the first thing, forcing a mentor, never a good idea. You don't force a mentor, you find one. They will make it very obvious when they show up. And the only way to really be ready for that is to keep that awareness to individuals or um, people who build and work in spaces that you align with. And research them and study them and find out who has influenced them and follow that path until you find the kind of people that you want to be around. You know, it's that idea of surrounding yourself with the people you want to be around. That was what I was trying to do. I was trying to surround myself with this person who might be able to train and help me. Uh, and so I moved into this uh, secondary phase where I was trying to basically make him my coach. And <laughs> this is where the, the fun story comes is that I stalked him on Twitter. That's how I originally got in the door. Um, and it was not a successful endeavor at first. I did not do my due diligence to research. I did not check everything I needed to. And I basically came off as this weird, crazy, nerdy kid who was trying to make crazy statements and trying to get him to pay attention to me and, you know, let me show up at his house so I could have him watch my running technique, you know. Uh, and I, I basically blew it. I, not basically, I entirely blew it. Uh, I creeped him out and there was no way I was going to have back in, but uh, I had set up a uh, business development meeting with a gentleman named Webb Smith. Uh, and he happened, his wife uh, at the time was being trained by Brian. And he said, listen, I'll, I'll help smooth over the conversation. He's like, but you're not going to get another shot. Uh, and I'm very, very thankful to him for helping provide me that, uh, that's another piece of this mentor thing for individuals trying to find one is not only do you want to be uh, open to finding people that you align with, but you got to be willing to eat humble pie and you have to be willing to accept that you're going to probably make some mistakes and be able to then try and find those other people in that same circle and, you know, defend yourself, share why you believe that you're still worth it. Just because it doesn't work out the first time does not mean that you won't be successful. Most of the time, if you want to find a real mentor, they're not interested in the person who just sends them a quick tweet. They're interested in the person who's going to do whatever it takes to get in the room with them because then they realize, okay, this is somebody who's done what I have done, somebody who's ready for this experience. Because if you're stuck in those phases of fear and boredom and frustration, you're not in a phase to be ready to handle the kind of you know, power relationship that exists in a mentor-mentee relationship. And so I screwed it up. Websmith gave me an opportunity and eventually Brian kind of slowly let me into the gates, had agreed to help uh, coach me at the time. I was I had qualified for regionals for CrossFit back when, <laughs> when it was easy to get in, unlike now. Um, and I had torn my shoulder uh, in the process of qualifying and basically knew I was gonna be taking the next year off. And he said, you know what, how about you instead try and help me train some of these athletes. He's like, you have a, a eye for biomechanics uh, and motion patterns that is unique to your engineering background. And I'm interested in being able to apply your skill sets to improve and sharpen the tools of my people. And that's another thing I think that is extremely important relative to a mentor. You need to make sure that that mentor is, is getting something from you. If somebody is in a relationship just to hand feed you success, that's not a mentor. That's just 
someone who wants to feel good about you know, being generous. You want somebody who's equally invested and knows that the success of you is ultimately a success for them because that means that they're going to be willing to devote the energy necessary to support you because it can't just be a cute little phone call here and there. And it can't just be where you let everything slide most often. You can't be in that phase. And that's not to say that you can't be a mentor of individuals who aren't ready for that kind of thing, but you are not the mentor, their mentor. Uh, as an example is to say, we had tried to hire some coaches uh, during the you know, kind of heyday of athletes. So when we were running remote programming and, and we got one particular uh, resume that had like 12 different mentors listed on it. You don't understand what a mentor is if you say that you have 12 different mentors, because at the end of the day, when you have a mentor, you know it and they know it and everyone else does too. They can have a lot of people that are working in their quote unquote shop. You know, let's go back to the Italian Renaissance when it was uh, this whole concept of mastery and, and mentorship was hyper successful. There could be, you know, 30, 40 people working in the, the workshop, but there is the one and that's the match. And that one mentor mentee relationship exists and everyone knows it exists and there's not a question in anyone's mind. Um, so at that phase, we basically uh, kind of started to dig in. And as I proved my worth and my dedication, he then realized that there was, you know, a optimum situation for us both to be de uh, devoted to it. And we were. And it wasn't like we had a conversation, you know, it, it wasn't where I basically said, you're my mentor, you know, question mark, text back, yes or no. Um, it just became this evolved sense of relationship. And I remember, <laughs> I remember way too many times just being absolutely emotionally devastated. And that's what I mean by that hubris piece of letting somebody who's, you know, going to not co-sign your bullshit you need someone who's going to break you. And I know that that seems, you know, way too hardcore and people will probably say, you know, there's got to be a better way. There are ways to be hardcore with somebody that don't have to be yelling and screaming. It's the simple things. You know, I remember opportunities where I would send this big, huge, long text message that explained this gigantic realization that I had about this performance metric that we we're doing and this new structure that we we're going to set up and how it related to, you know, stars and space and the center of the universe. And he'd reply with good, keep reading, <laughs> you know, and you're like, wait, what? He's like, you heard me. Now stop texting me. And that would be it. And I wouldn't hear from him for like two or three days. And here I am just un unloading my soul and all these things that I feel and he's good. And you're like, good. Good's a garbage word, you know, like from whiplash, there are no two words more harmful in the uh, English language than good job, right? Good is not a good thing. And so you don't have to be vile and you don't have to be insensitive, but what you have to be is the essence of um, almost nothingness. You're not trying to necessarily tease the process or stimulate it in a particular way. You're just trying to let that process continue. And so your job as a mentor it is to give the right bits of information necessary for that particular learning style of the person that's your mentee to stimulate them to continue thinking, to continue driving, to not be satisfied with the previous element of themselves, who they were yesterday. And it, it doesn't, it, 
it's not like this brand new crazy idea, right? It's it's very logical. You're just trying to get somebody to keep thinking. We keep saying that you know you need to keep gaining information, and the way that you do that sometimes is just with a, a simple text. Sometimes it's in ignoring somebody. Sometimes it's in, and I had these too, where you do un, unload, you know, hellfire and brimstone, and let somebody know that they've gone way too far beyond their uh, their quota for what they should be, and that's the relationship that I have with Brian. And so over the years, it it molded us both. And we've had many conversations about this throughout time. You know, we, we kind of jested about it at the beginning of saying we should try and write these things down so that we could go back and show people what uh, a apprenticeship is really like, because we knew that this didn't happen. We looked around to all of our family and our friends and our coworkers and those people in our lives. And there's very seldom a true mentor mentee relationship anymore. People kind of have these small little, you know, clicks or somebody at work who kind of puts them under their wing and helps lead them to, you know, some different information, but they don't really teach them the skill. They just kind of navigate them through some of the choppier waters so that they can kind of have a place to go play in the water by themselves. Um, and as that then evolved even further, eventually you, you get to this point where I would say that the the apprentice or the mentee challenges the, the mentor and it has to happen and it's brutal and it's gnarly. And most of the time when that happens, like that relationship doesn't survive, but it was never intended to. And that's where I think that people uh, misinterpret what happens at the end of a mentorship is that if a mentor has truly successfully done their job, then the mentee no longer needs you. And if you're, going to then tie yourself to the concept of their success and say, you were nothing without me, then you've entirely missed the whole process, right? And that's why this thing can light itself on fire and burn in a, in a you know a fiery crash is that you get to the end and all of a sudden these mentors try and be like, you know, I made you, I gave you these opportunities. If it was not for me, you'd be nothing. Why would you be sad? Why would you be mad? Why would you feel neglected? You were able to transfer the expertise and the skill sets that you had onto somebody else in order to give them the opportunity to build and increase and enhance the skills and the arts that you believe in. That's the entire point of it. You should be making people that are better than you. You should be making them capable of thinking harder than you. And that's not to say that you're stupid or that you, you aren't successful. There are many areas where within the relationship between Brian and I, uh, he's way stronger in so many other areas than I am. But there's other areas where I'm way stronger than him. And it came from the process of trying to, again, repeat those skills. The reason that you have the embodiment of a mastery is that if you decide to take the gauntlets of Taekwondo and the the uh, shin guards of uh, programming athletes and the helmet of movement and position analysis, right? Suddenly you have this unique armor set that allows you to be good at a particular skill area that you find yourself in. Um, and so at that phase of the mentor process, you essentially kind of have to break from each other. Um, and Brian and I went through that phase, went through the phase where it was necessary to no longer have a power relationship of one or the other, but to create an even plane. And that is a very rocky position to be in. In order to be successful with that, you must 
realize why you're doing it and realize that you're both at a level of maturity and appreciation to accept that. Typically it happens uh, where the apprentice feels that they're ready and the mentor isn't ready for them to leave. And the mentor bashes them and tells them how, you know, they're never going to succeed. And that in that uh, relationship becomes stale and poisonous and they never speak again. Uh, but Brian and I, we went through that, that portion of the phase and we were both mature enough to understand exactly what we needed. And I still refer to him as my mentor. There is no new mentor in my life right now who has changed that lens. But at the same time, we are also now uh, peers. We are on that same plane with each other and can have open conversations and relationships that allow us to uh, respect the level of uh, evolved skill that we each have because we're trying to find out how we can sew things together from our diverse view sets to make something greater. Um, and so that's the kind of last little piece of picking a mentor. Once you've found one through that alignment and once you've allowed them to tap into your life, giving them total transparency, you need to take as much as you can out of it, but you ultimately have to also recognize when that mentorship needs to evolve to that next phase of peer to peer, because you don't want to have a continuous power struggle in a relationship because that's difficult and that's poisonous because there's always feelings that get hurt for the wrong ways. They're not about professional things. They become personal because you run out of the professional context because it's not really anything to do with skill or professionalism. It has everything to do with just this emotional uncertainty of what it would be like if you weren't in that power dynamic. Um, and at that point, once you've kind of graduated from that experience, it becomes your job to start trying it yourself, you know, instantaneously. You, you should immediately be trying to be a mentor to other people. And that's not like the mentor as in the mentor, but somebody who's trying to offer experience and guidance to other individuals, because it takes a long time to develop the skills necessary to be able to manage somebody in that way, to devote yourself in that way. And the only way you're going to understand the true necessity of that investment from the other side of the token uh, and being the mentor yourself is if you mess it up a few times and you get dirty along the way. You, you have to fail many, many, many times before you ultimately succeed. Um, so I would say that's, that's kind of how that process went and, and, and how we became involved with each other. It was all over Twitter stalking and has changed my life ever since. I mean, I think that's, that's the perfect way to wrap up. You mentioned stimulate continued thinking, and, and I can't help to think about that phrase after our talk here and how many different perspectives I now have on the mentor-mentee relationship, uh, apprenticeships, uh, what I need to do better in my life, and, and I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of this conversation as well. Uh, where can the listeners stay connected with you? Are there also any external sites, links you want them checking out? Um. I, uh, I used to have a whole bunch of stuff on the internet and don't anymore. My uh, Instagram handle is nerd reinvented. Um, every once in a while, I'll push something. Uh, right now, I've been doing, I, I've discovered Instagram stories. It's not that I've discovered them. It's just I've actually tried to apply myself. And so I've been trying to put up little posts right now where, that I'm calling This is America, where it's just the ironies of what America is. Uh, like yesterday, I took a picture of a Zevia can next to your cell phone and the fact that, you know, we say we make these healthy choices, yet we still sit kyphotically broken over our cell phones and text and fub our family members away. Um, so it, 
that's, I think, the easiest way to reach me. Uh, here at the end of the summer, I'm going to be uh, speaking to a group of incoming freshmen at the University of Colorado, and we're going to record that, and that's going to be kind of a big presentation on mastery, uh, apprenticeship, and kind of my views relative towards education and how we can start to maybe reform it in order to supply a future for our uh, kids a little bit better. And the reason I highlight that is you know, I've been doing a lot of mentor work at NASA. And one thing that I've realized from all this investigation and personal research is that there are some, some ways I think that we can get better about trying to help process skill development in our country in order to be less focused on the speed with which we acquire it, but the quality with which we do. Um, so ho hopefully that'll be available uh, after the summer. That should be something nice to look at. But really, uh, the nerd reinvented, or for anyone, I always say, if you got any questions or comments or something that you'd love to ask a question about, by all means, email me. Uh, it's my first name, dot my last name. So C-O-D-Y dot B-U-R-K-H-A-R-T at gmail.com. Uh, and just shoot me a line. I don't mind uh, having a conversation because most of this stuff is entirely stimulating and allows me to see the world in a different way to, to advance my own thoughts. So great. Well, we're going to have all that linked up in the show notes. Cody Burkhart, can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Yeah, absolutely, Sean. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to have the opportunity to <laughs> blabber on about the things that go on in my daily life. Awesome. Thanks so much. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.